Well, good morning and welcome. Welcome online audience. Join us wherever you are and uh, take a Bible or a Bible app and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes one more time. Uh, today we will uh, complete our, our study of this important book. In this final passage, Solomon is very direct about what he was trying to tell us. In fact, you could uh, glance at verse 13, the second to last book, uh, verse of this book, and he just tells you this is the conclusion. Uh, so it's kind of like if, if you need to leave early today, this is it. The conclusion of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments, or we could put it this way, what Solomon has been trying to tell us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that the way to avoid an empty, meaningless life is to worship God and then to obey God, do what he says. That's it. He has, he has taken us through the early chapters to show us everything that can end up empty in our life, and it describes our culture so well. But here he says is how you fix it. It's worshiping God and obeying God. We're picking it up in verse 8, actually, where Solomon repeats what he opened the book with by saying, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. The word could be, in your translation, futile or empty or vain. Everything is empty. It's the, this term that Solomon used in the Old Testament Hebrew is the same term that Jeremiah used actually to describe idols. Jeremiah the prophet said how idols are empty, vain. They're like they're silver, gold, stone. They're nothing. They're a piece of stuff. That's how our life can be. And it's sad to know the story of Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes. If you go back to the account of his life in 1 Kings chapter 11, you find that his life actually departed to such an extent that he became an idol worshiper. And that can seem silly or remote to us that someone would worship a, a thing. And yet what we'll see in the opening chapters as we review a little bit this morning the opening chapters remind us of the path of idolatry for Solomon all the things that he found empty and they are the same issues that you and I face these these are these are the issue this is the list of what Solomon tells us about intellect entertainment accomplishment wealth, or sex. That was his list. And today, God might work in your heart to put something else in the list, to add something else to the list, but we'll see a lot of overlap because this is very current. So let's just review a little bit of what he said in the opening chapters. This list, I want you to realize, is not describing sins. None of those things are sins in themselves. But they become idols that can replace God and yet these very things are what fill our, our, our time, our thoughts, our screens. The idol of intellect. 
Chapter 1, verse 17, then I applied myself, Solomon said, to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind, empty. The idol of entertainment. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Whoops, I didn't have the verse up there. There you go. The idol of accomplishment. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. These are good things he built. The idol of wealth. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. And Second Chronicles records that King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the of the earth in wealth and wisdom, literally the richest man alive. And finally, the idol of sex. I acquired male and female male singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. And First Kings eleven three says, astoundingly, he had seven hundred wives who were princesses and three hundred concubines or, or mistresses. He 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 had it all. He tried it all. And he found it all empty. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was empty or meaningless. And so that's why at the end of the book, he reminds us, back to verse 8 now of Ecclesiastes 12, he reminds us, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But we look at that verse a bit last week as well, and we need to connect it to the opening words of chapter 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come. And then he describes this descent of abilities of aging and eventually death. And if you recall, the idea of, of God as our creator is that Creators determine the purpose of what they create. If you create something, you determine what it's going to be used for. And God created you. God created you individually, uniquely. And he says, I have a plan for you to accomplish. So when he says, remember your creator, he says, remember and do. The word remember implies action. Remember and serve the purpose for which God made you distinctly. Otherwise, verse 8, your life will be empty. So I, I know that you're here this morning because you do want your life to matter. And if you've uh, followed and responded to this piece of the Word of God, you uh, realize that a life that matters is a God-filled, God-centered life. In fact, Solomon has made it very clear throughout the book a number of times that that is actually the path to joy. And so he has described how we can enjoy life because when you're living for the purposes for which God created you, it not only gives you meaning as a, as a sobering, difficult, I'm serving my purpose thing, but actually it is the source of joy in your life. So as we, as we, as we look back through this, we realize that this is the path of joy. This is the path of, of fulfillment but we have to address 
the idols. Anything that replaces God. So these, this list of things he, we read, in intellect, laughter, achievement, wealth, sexuality, are all God's blessings. When we use them within his plan and his commands, they become idols when he is absent. And, and, and case or exhibit A is really Solomon himself because he, he pursued these things for meaning in themselves because he had that capacity and ability to do that. And he, 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 he pursued them in excess and he, he pursued them without being careful to always worship and obey God. And so they gradually replaced his love for God. He failed at the very conclusion he gives us, and he writes this, I think, later in life when he is, is repentant. He failed at the conclusion to verse 13 to fear or worship God and keep his commands. Because early in, in Israel's history, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses records the revelation of God that, hey, Moses, someday Israel's going to have a king, and when you have a king, you need to make sure that the king realizes that he should not, he was very specific, don't multiply silver and gold and horses and wives because they will take your heart away from God. And along comes Solomon, the second king of Israel, and he multiplies silver, gold, horses, and wives. And they took his heart away from God. So if it happened to Solomon, this inspired writer, who are we to think that we're not vulnerable to the same kind of idolatry? So God is first of all addressed here as creator, verses 1 through 8, but now as we look specifically into this conclusion, we meet him next as a shepherd, a shepherd who has given us his word, because only through his word will we avoid this downward spiral of idolatry. Verses 9 through 12, not only was the teacher, referring to Solomon, wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people he pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Uh, all of you have the word shepherd in your, in your Bible translation someplace there. Uh, mine has it capitalized. I think that's appropriate. It's referring to actually God as our shepherd. He's, the Lord is our shepherd. There's other places he's called our shepherd. So we, we've met in this chapter God as creator. Now we meet him as shepherd and a shepherd who is so good and so caring that he has spoken to us to give us his word so we can avoid an empty life. The only way to avoid idolatry is to stay connected to God through his word. So in verse 9, the teacher was wise, imparted knowledge. Uh, uh, some have thought maybe, that, did Solomon write this? It sounds like he's bragging. But no, it is Solomon. In, in the very first verse of the book, he calls himself the teacher or preacher, the son of David. We know it's Solomon. Solomon is not being arrogant. He simply knew that he was writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit given by one shepherd. This is no different than when the prophets of the Old Testament would declare, thus saith the Lord. Because God was directly revealing to them, in the absence of a completed scripture that we have, he directly inspired, revealed his word to them. 
where Paul the Apostle would say he's writing as an apostle or uh, thus I say by the word of the Lord, something like that. So Solomon is, is claiming revelation, the ability to impart knowledge, wisdom, and at the end of verse 9, to set in order many Proverbs. And you probably realize that the, the book of Proverbs is almost the majority, the vast majority is written by Solomon. And again, as you look at Solomon's own life, he imparted so much knowledge to all of us, and yet there was that dark season of his life when he didn't follow his own inspired advice. Uh, the famed uh, evangelist Billy Graham had a routine of reading one chapter in Proverbs each day in addition to whatever else he wanted to read. And since Proverbs has 31 chapters, it meant that he could go through the book of Proverbs once a month. And, and to me, it explains, it's no surprise that Billy Graham's ministry was never marred by moral or ethical scandal like far too many high-profile spiritual leaders have experienced. This, this section, this, this emphasis on the Word of God forces us to ask today, if we really want a meaningful life, if we really want to avoid the pitfalls of, of idolatry, are we personally committed to the Word of God? Because that is God's communication to us. That is what is able to transform our minds and our lives. This passage really is helpful to us just to understand even how we got our scripture, the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. Uh, I trust that you already realize the Bible is unique among all other books because it tells us God's truth uh, about everything in this life as well as everything after this life. Uh, it is unique. It's not just very good literature. The works of Shakespeare or Melville or, or, or Tolkien may indeed be read a hundred years from now, but they never can even, they never claim to give, nor do they give eternal transformative truth. But this process described by Solomon here tells us how the thoughts of God are actually personally communicated to us through the words of someone a human being like Solomon. So do you notice in verse 9, the, the human part of this, he, he pondered, he searched out, he set in order, he searched for just the right words. So, so Solomon, as he was writing inspired scripture, was fully mentally engaged. Solomon wrote these words, but then at the end of verse 10, he acknowledges given by one shepherd. So Solomon wrote them, but yet God gave them. There are, there are parts of Scripture, of course, that are given verbatim by God, the Ten Commandments. I think many of the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, much of what the prophets wrote were, thus saith the Lord, they were exactly. But even then, their minds were engaged in the whole process. A couple of uh, verses that, again, help us to understand this. Second Peter Chapter 1 tells us this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men, this is very important, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it really was these men writing, but 
the Holy Spirit was carrying them along, producing, inspiring, controlling, guaranteeing the accuracy, guaranteeing that we had exactly everything God wanted us to know. So let's not be surprised that Solomon searched for the right words. Or if you look at the opening verses of uh, the Gospel of Luke, and then Luke also wrote the book of Acts, he, he, records, he, 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 he states how he researched the life of Christ. He researched what happened after Christ ascended and, and the story of the church in the book of Acts. So his mind was fully engaged, but this was happening all along that the, that the Holy Spirit in a unique way, not the way that people are writing today or even good Christian things are written today, but in a unique way, the Holy Spirit was carrying along so that we would have in black and white a record of what God wanted us to know exactly. Or 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. That actually is the word inspired. Inspired means that God breathed it out. And so it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God breathed, though man penned it. And so back in verse 9, we see, or verse uh, 10, then he says how he searched for the right words. And again, if you're looking at a text of of another Bible translation, some of them use the word, uh, the term, the words of delight, which is probably a good way to put it because this is an emotionally positive uh, word. It's not just right words, but they're pleasant words. I think he's referring to the fact that God's communicating his grace and his love whenever he writes to us. God never, God never wrote to put us down or discourage us. Everything he wrote was coming from his, his grace or Jeremiah, who wrote some of the hardest things in terms of judgment, yet Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and delight of my heart because truth is truth and always serves to bring us closer in our relationship with God and which then is a source of joy in our relationship with God. Sometimes when God speaks in grace, he... uh, says things that are hard to hear. He states serious warnings, but they're true. He will give us a record of consequences when we disobey what we know God says. And so there is this perfect blend in God of, of grace and truth. He is the perfect father, the perfect uh, parent. A loving parent is someone who will in his, own, his or her own heart, have this, this amazing love, and you want to just lavish your love upon your child. But because of your great love, you warn them, and you, you teach them what is dangerous about going into the street, or how they treat others, or things that would, would down the road really uh, destroy relationships. You want them to know that because you are a grace and truth person in a, in a perfect sense. That is God. And so it's exactly the right words that are upright and true, pleasant and true, grace plus truth. And then verse 11 even illustrates for us with a couple of really good word pictures what, the, what, the, what your Bible is like. It's like goads and nails. Goads is G-O-A-D-S if you're not looking at, at, at a Bible verse. But, uh, so God's wisdom through his word is like goads and nails, and it's because he cares for us. A goad is, uh, is what you use on a farm or a ranch 
or a shepherd would use. Solomon's dad, David, of course, was a shepherd who wrote the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is our shepherd. And if you think of the Lord is my shepherd passage, you may recall that it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That term for rod or staff is more likely a defensive kind of weapon where the, the shepherd's taking care of the sheep and fending off anybody who would try to get in the way, you know, the, the, the wolf, the lion, the bear kind of a thing. The rod and your staff, they comfort me. I know that I am secure, but this is not that word. This is a word for a pointed stick that a shepherd would use or a rancher today would maybe call it a cattle prod where you are making, directing the animal to do something they don't want to do. Motivating, get going that way, or stop, or it, it stings. So God's word, he's already told us in verse 9, is pleasant, joy-giving, but God's word is also meant to sting sometimes. And then the third or the, the next uh, picture, word picture is like firmly embedded nails are the collected sayings. So you put it all together, and God's word is like, is like construction nails. Could have been more of a peg type of a thing in that day, or it's a word that could be used at tent stakes. But the idea is the same. It's the idea that they need it. You, you need something. If you're building a house, you, lumber is not enough. <laughs> You, you can kind of prop it up at the first wind and blow it over because it's nails that holds all the lumber together. Or you could try to put up a tent without stakes, but then the wind come along and it'll get tossed into the air. So you have stakes and you have nails, and that's what gives you the stability. And so the Word of God is this, this truth so that we know what is truth because everything in the world is screaming at us, this is what is true, this is what is true, or this is what is important, this is what's not important, and... So how do, you, how do you stabilize your life? This is how you stabilize your life. This passage is actually a good uh, transition to our, our next study. Next uh, week we're going to start a uh, study in the book, New Testament book of 1 Timothy. And one of the things we'll discover is core to Paul's reason for writing 1 Timothy is to describe what the church should be like because we are guardians of God's truth. We are the ones who, who have the word of God, must proclaim the word of God among us and, and to a needy world. It's all given by one shepherd. I know, as I, as I talk to you guys, it's like preaching to the choir, because you, you came to church today, or you tuned in today, knowing that this is open door Bible church. You knew we'd be doing this, looking at, at the word of God today. But is it possible we could get so familiar that we would never that we begin to lose the wonder of the fact that this this physical thing that you hold in your hand in one form or another this is God speaking to us this is God speaking to us this is God speaking to us, to you, wherever you are when you invest in it. Because we have an eternal shepherd that cares about us so much. He wants this connection. He wants this relationship. He wants to communicate himself to us because he knows that in this life we do not see him. 
but we can hear him. In the old days, before Skype, FaceTime, Zoom, and other platforms, we had telephones. Remember telephones with wires? You'd have one on your counter against the wall, and everything had wires. And You know, we really had that for a long time. And now video has added something to that. But if you really had to choose a way of communicating with someone you love, if you had to choose between picture or sound, video or audio only, which one would you choose? Audio. Because unless you can lip read, the video is really pretty useless, isn't it? It's helpful. It's nice. But if you have a Zoom meeting with someone in another state and all you get is the video, it's useless. You need words. And so in the technology of God, he has given us the written word for some 3,500 years by now because God wanted a two-way relationship of communication. Now, God's always heard man. And in fact, in the garden, when there was just Adam and Eve, they could talk in the garden. But then after, after sin, we see that prayer begins, Genesis 4 26 says, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So he always has heard us, and he would speak in some specific ways and visions, but when the time of Moses came, he began to write it down. And Moses, even living in the time of the book of Exodus, would would record the history of Genesis for us. And he would begin to write the law, and and we would have now a written record of God and his ways. Papyrus, parchment, now paper, because he knew we needed to see it on black and white. If we ever lose the wonder that this is God speaking to us, we will experience a downward spiral of empty idolatry because everything else we hear and see is going to take its place and only God's word can keep us from those empty worthless things so make it a delight make it accept it as a pointed stick and let it stabilize your life like nails or stakes in the storms because God wanted you to know this. And so be sure not to add anything to what God has said. Verse 12, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. (laughs) We always joked about that as seminary students. There's way too many books and way too much study, but the point is not that there are not good things written, especially when it's something written to help us understand God's word. The point is that nothing that man writes dare change, alter, add to what God has written. So we, I have a nice library. The church has a library. I've had the privilege of studying in some, some really good libraries. Man's books are not all useless. Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble, they've they've got a lot of good stuff, but do we have the discernment to know that we need to read everything through the one book, through this filter? Because this will always be useful, always be truthful, and it comes to us from our one shepherd, God himself. It's like Solomon pauses 
In this final sections, he has told us God is our creator. He has pictured God as our shepherd. And he says, let me tell you the conclusion. He's also our judge. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So two verbs to summarize what we've been studying for about a half a year. Fear or worship God and obey God. That's it. The word fear God is not just talking about being afraid of God. It's, it's bigger and better than that. It's about us acknowledging him in reverence. It's us understanding and focusing on who he is. It's always vertical. To fear God is to, to lift our eyes and think, who is this God who created all things? Who is this God who cares about me as a shepherd? Who is this God? He's my judge too. And so it's an acknowledgement of God. And so understanding who he is, we praise him. And so it has to be vertical first. And so as we begin to appreciate who he is, it suddenly becomes clear to us what we must do, the horizontal. Because he has, he has filled his word with principles and commands that are to guide life. So keep his commandments, obey, do. And this is the whole duty of man. He says, let me boil it down. Everything can be empty and idolatrous in your life unless you worship him. And then in response, you do what he says. And then God can turn every one of these possible idols into actual blessings. Because our intellect and our, and our wealth and sexuality are all things that are gifts of God. But if you fail to worship, if you fail to obey, they'll become empty and idolatrous to you. Your intellect will become your idol if you're not worshiping or obeying God because you'll be puffed up with arrogance. You will look down on others who don't uh, have your mental capacity, who don't agree with what you've concluded. And so your intellect can be your idol. Your entertainment can become your idol. Fun, pleasure, if you're not worshiping, and obeying God because you will worship whatever enables you to escape the hurts you feel. You'll live for your time off. You'll overdose on your hobby. You'll vegetate your life on the couch. You'll eat, drink, smoke, indulge in anything that would cause you to either forget your sins or those who have sinned against you. Your achievements can be your idol if you're not worshiping or obeying God. You'll be successful. You put everything into it, you'll be successful. You'll be so good, you'll demand notice and you will be somebody and you will be empty. Your achievements will be your idol. In fact, the more you achieve sometimes, the more possibility that your money could become your idol if you're not worshiping or obeying God. In fact, money can become your idol whether you are achieving your financial goals or feel you're failing because it's the love of money, as Paul will uh, tell Timothy. It's the obsession with earning it and growing it and spending it on our favorite things and, 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 and uh, counting it and thinking of it constantly. Your sexuality can become your idol 
if you're not worshiping or obeying God's word, there's so many ways to indulge immoral lust, especially today, mental, visual, or actual physical, real-life perversions. And lust is perhaps the most debilitating of the addictions in our culture, Christians included. So life can end with total emptiness. Apart from God, like Solomon gratefully learned, or men like Hugh Hefner never did. So how do we crush our idols? God's word given by one shepherd that leads us to worship and obey. Uh, Recently, Priscilla has been reading and and sharing with others about a a good book, one of those other books, about God's word uh, by Jenny Allen, who incidentally I uh, went to the same seminary I did, but she um, addresses our thoughts. Uh, the book is called Get Out, of, uh, Get Out of Your Head. The thought idea from Philippians 4, 8, where it says, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, there's a whole list of things. Think on these things. Because the point is that we choose what we think about. And as we choose what we think about, it alters everything else. I'm going to kind of borrow some terms from one of her charts and, and uh, made one of my own about addressing the downward spiral of idolatry that we've seen in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. It starts with emotions. Everybody feels things. We just do. You could say you're more or less emotional, but you have emotional emotions because you feel either you feel hurt or ignored or you feel insecure or unloved. And so there's all this feeling goes on that we want to address because we respond. It becomes a, our feelings become a core way that motivates us. And so we like to fix our feelings, we think. And so that becomes thoughts. And so we begin to think, how do I fix these feelings? I don't like these feelings. Or I want this feeling. And so we begin to think. And as we begin to think, is these choices about thoughts become the path to idolatry, because we choose to believe what we want to believe. And so we believe a lot of lies. We believe what other people say, oh, this, is, this will make you happy. And often it's a satanic idea at its, course, at its core to say, this will make you happy. This will fulfill you. Ecclesiastes has taught us it won't. But we begin to believe these lies. And we, this is important. We choose what we believe. We choose what we believe. It has to be grounded here. And after we begin to to think in these false ways, we will always behave or act or do based on what we think. So if we're believing lies, we will be doing wrong. It's just a progression. And so whatever it is that we we do that might be in contradiction to the Word of God came from our, our thinking, our behaviors, our addictions. And when we begin to think things that are not true, and do things that are not right, guess what it affects all around us is our relationships. Spoils. Sin spoils our relationships. And so we see broken relationships and physical, emotional problems, family problems, maybe job problems. Of course, all those relationships will then create consequences, which really boil down to Uh, in this life kind of judgment of God because we're experiencing consequences. It's just just the way 
life works and you have the record in scripture of this is what there are causes and and effects and God will bring every deed into judgment so how do we turn this around how do we reverse the spiral he says here's the conclusion of the matter fear or worship God as we worship God both hearing from him in his word and acknowledging him, reaching out to him in prayer, our thoughts are transformed. Be transformed, Paul told the Romans, Roman Christians, by the renewing of your mind. That comes as we worship. I know that I need to personally worship in the word and prayer before I ever study the word for you guys. I need my time with God in the morning. Um, as I read through the Bible, a chapter or two generally, it reminds me something about God. It may or may not apply to that day or my feelings, but there's, it is something about God that will give me his perspective on who he is, or often something I should think, because my, my thinking will go astray. So sometimes it's something that stings a little bit, like a cattle prod. Sometimes it's something that calms me with something I'm, I'm fearing or concerned about. And I need to talk to God to complete the loop of communication. He can't just talk to me. I need to talk to him. And, and something I, I'm actually kind of probably doing it more lately is to audibly pray this helps me keep on track i don't i don't start talking about the weather so much so to audibly express to god my emotions to express to god my thoughts and there's something about hearing myself say my thoughts to god that almost becomes self-correcting going like wait a minute that's not true i'm telling god something that's not true and he has a, he has a way of, 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 of purifying my thoughts. So it could be my needs, my confessions. If you were to eavesdrop on my time with God, you would not be impressed. You wouldn't be impressed with how long I spend or how profound my prayers might be. You would not be impressed with how often I have to remember to quit looking at my phone to get started. But I know this, that until I connect with God, I cannot be corrected by God. And it is that connection that has to daily, in fact then continually, repeatedly throughout the day, correct my thinking. And then as my thinking is corrected, then my behaviors can be seen for what they are to be corrected, which will affect my relationships, which can bring joy and meaning and be a source instead of God's blessing. Now all has been heard, and here's the conclusion of the matter, Solomon said. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring 
every deed into judgment, including the hidden things, thoughts, right? Emotions, behaviors he knows nothing about. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I want to close out the the service today with uh, playing a song. Here's the title of the song. If you're watching us online, uh, you won't be able to get this, except uh, you need to go to YouTube and look up this song, Clear Clear the Stage, Jimmy Needham, and you can uh, have the same follow-up that we have here. But just let let his words in song minister to you. He writes from the perspective of a professional uh, musician, but you'll have no trouble translating it to what God might be saying to you by his word.